Welcome to the Unveiled Podcast. Today, I have uh, two amazing guests, uh, Thomas Hartle. Thomas was diagnosed with stage four terminal colon cancer, and uh, he's from Saskatoon, father of two, in uh, diagnosed in 2016, and had multiple rounds of chemotherapy and radiation treatment before his cancer came back in August 2019. Thomas was the first Canadian to illegally use magic mushrooms in a therapeutic context two years ago in Saskatoon with an organization called Theracil. And uh, full disclosure, I was invited by Theracil to come along and film that first ever Canadian to use uh, psilocybin therapy. And uh, so I was there with Thomas. And uh, Thomas, you're with your friend, John. Uh, John Simpson is an amazing uh, person. And I really got to know John on that on that experience being there in Saskatoon with John. Uh, John, it works with... Um, in hospice care and has got to know Thomas over the last number of years uh, as Thomas has uh, been going in and out of chemo and treatment. And so John was there as, as well for the experience. And so uh, we have these two gentlemen on, on the podcast today. Uh, welcome here, John and Thomas. Thanks a lot for coming on Unveiled. Nice to be here. Be here. That's Thanks great. For yeah. So why don't we start with this, uh, Thomas? Why don't we start with you? Um, tell me a little about your how you first connected with John, because I want to set the context of how the two of you guys know each other, because it's quite a beautiful little story. Um, I know it involves your family and these kind of things, but tell us a little bit of the story, Thomas, on how you and John first connected, and then we'll get into that amazing experience that you had two years ago. Sure. Um, well, I. Uh... I, I guess uh, we need to start with uh, my father-in-law back in 2019, um, also had stage four cancer. And uh, when my mother-in-law passed away in November, uh, my father-in-law uh, really wasn't able to look after himself. So he came to live with us in our home. Joe John came? Oh, no, your uh, father-in-law. My father-in-law. Yeah, right. Okay, uh, yes. right, right, right. And, uh, and so as... Uh, as a, a part of uh, my father-in-law's learning to uh, to deal with his cancer and, and the passing of his wife, uh, John was uh, my father-in-law's hospice volunteer, mm. and uh, and was uh, helping him through that process and the grieving process. And uh, and of course, being here in my home, I uh, I was uh, in there like a dirty shirt and. Uh, <laughs> participating in the uh, the conversation and things and uh and uh john and i became friends and after my uh, father-in-law passed away in uh, december of 2019 i uh adopted uh, john as my own uh, hospice volunteer mm. <laughs> he was kind enough to uh to uh to uh, agree to be my hospice volunteer and uh, we have become very, very good friends. Mm. I, uh, I value John greatly. Yeah, no, he's been there for so many of your, uh, obviously, on a, almost on a weekly basis, kind of connecting into your life there with your family and walking you through uh, all these these cancer uh, appointments and these kinds of things. Uh, John, welcome to the show. What what was your first encounter with Thomas? And what did you uh, what drew you to him and his family? Because you have really, in essence, embedded yourself into his world. Yeah, I hate to hear it put like that, but that's what I've done. Yeah, you have, man. It's, you know, and it's not like you tried really hard. You just were such a loving, open person, John, and they just welcomed you. Well, it, like Thomas said, I met 
Thomas through his father-in-law. And I did, I think I met with his father-in-law maybe three or four times before he passed. So, um, and he wasn't in a very good shape to have many discussions and he was still heavy and grieving for losing his wife. And he was preoccupied, preoccupied with his grief uh, over his wife and his own diagnosis. So he was um, having a hard time and he passed quietly and um, blessedly quietly at home under Thomas and Marlis's loving care, which is a great way to go. Mm-hmm. And Thomas and I, we talked probably more together than I talked with uh, Thomas's father-in-law and we just hit it off. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how it came about but we started talking about psychedelics and all kinds of weird things about treatments for cancer with mushrooms and things. And we just had a real kind of like mind and our, and our conversations would go to the strangest places, you know, psychology and philosophy and religion and theology and all kinds of strange things. It was just, we just had an instant connection as, as two people, forget the cancer. We related on very personal levels um, in many different areas. And it was always, I always left conversations with Thomas. I always left kind of stimulated. I really valued wow. everything I got from. Yeah, you know, John, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive into a little bit of your background because I think it's really important that we understand these strings that brought this kind of circumstance together. Uh, John, you have quite an am- amazing story and a past, and uh, you've gone through some uh, significant healing in your life. Um, if you, if you kind of think about your, you know, your 70 plus years, uh, how did you encounter psychedelics yourself uh, for the first time? And what impact did they make on your life? It was a strange, strange journey but, uh, from where I came from. My father died when I was 12 years old, and the whole direction of my life took a total right turn. And probably the most significant moment of my life was his passing when I was 12. And uh, he, he died um, from a sudden heart attack. He was obese. He smoked. He drank. He was angry. He was depressed. And children carry their parents' stuff with them. And I carried all, all I carried all my father's stuff in the pit of my stomach, and uh, I grew up and became just like him: angry, depressed, alcoholic, smoker, overweight, all those things. Um, but when I was 33, I got the gift of sobriety, and uh, I got sober. It was uh, something my dad could never get; he was never given the gift of sobriety. I was. I don't know why. It's a gift. It's it's a grace, right? It's not mm-hmm. the not something you earn. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I got sober and I did the twelve step thing. You know the fundamentalist AA rituals, and uh, yeah. uh, I eventually became uh, an addictions counselor as a result of trying to understand and and uh, manage my my own addictions. I became a counselor, and I did that for thirty years. And like I say, I started out in a fundamentalist AA program which is put the plug in the jug don't drink every drug is a drug and you know and so I was 30 years as a counselor um never did any other drugs I never drank I never did never did pot never did no psychedelics uh but I always wanted to do LSD and I told all my co-workers that when I retired I was going to do acid and when I retired 
two years later, I went down to Peru and did ayahuasca. And it was um, life-changing. It was transforming in every which way I can think of. Can you take us and, into that? We've got a bit of time. And I, I, John, this is important. People don't, you know, we hear, oh, I went to, you know, Peru and did ayahuasca. People go, oh, that's neat. And they kind of dismiss it like, you know, whatever. Um, but what you just said, John, was this was life transforming. You're talking about a lifetime of trauma, of dealing with addiction. You've been clean. You've done it. You know, you've been working. You've been addictions counselor. So what was it that that did that these other treatments, these other modalities wasn't able to unlock in you? What happened, John? Well, during my recovery phase, and I was always looking for something, you know, my archetype, the Jungian archetypes is I'm a quester. Mm. Right. I'm always looking, looking, looking for answers. Right. And I tried many different religions, many different kinds of philosophies, and I followed followed many gurus and nothing seemed to satisfy. And when I did went down, to, I got a calling. It was just a calling. It was, again, an invitation, just like my gift of sobriety is I got this this uh, this need to go down to ayahuasca. Everything I read about it, and I read many, many books on it, and I watched many videos, and it was like I researched it to death because it scared the hell out of me, to tell you the truth. Uh, I didn't want nobody, I didn't do drugs when I drank because I didn't want to mess up with my mind, which makes no sense. But uh, yeah, yeah, the alcohol is <laughs> messing your mind fine, fine just, <laughs> yeah, just well. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So I went and I did the ayahuasca down in the jungle. Uh, we went. Uh, an hour up the Amazon River, and we walked in for another hour into the jungle. This little, this little settlement of uh, of uh, Shipibo. Um, it's a Shipibo settlement, and we went through all the ceremonies, and they prepared us very well. And being an ex-Catholic, I knew ritual and ceremony very well. It was ingrained into me, and um, I loved the ritual and the ceremony of the ayahuasca ceremonies, and in the jungle away from no cell phones, no radios, no TV, nothing, no distractions, just you and the jungle and the medicine and the ceremonies. And like I say, it scared the hell out of me and I had no idea what to expect. But my, my question was, tell me what love is. I wanted to know what love was. It was a really simple question. I didn't have any great intentions. I didn't want to change the world. I just wanted to know what love really was. Cause I, I have always thought that that was the answer. You know, during my addiction time, I lived under fear. And most of my life was based on fear. And I've been moving, trying to move towards love. And um, during my first ceremony, I got to feel and I got to know in the pit of my stomach that I was connected to everything and everything was connected to me and everything was just all right. Wow. I didn't have to strain or stress. Everything was just okay. John, that, then, that's amazing. I want to just punctuate what you just said, because this is a common thing that when I talk to people who've had psychedelic experiences, you said it's the pit of my stomach. This isn't a head knowledge. This isn't, I read a book and I really understand something now, or I was at a lecture. I took a course. We, we live in our heads in the West. We just, mm. just perseverate. What is yeah. it called? What's that word? You know, you're just spinning around in your brain over and over. You're talking about something deep down in the gut that you're knowing that you are loved, that you are connected. How do you explain that, John? That is, that is, that is profound. 
I don't, there's no explanation for it. It was, I was just given the, the gift of sight, basically. Like I was just able to see it and feel it for what it was. I was so disconnected mm -hmm. from myself. Um, again, just as a sidebar here, I think one of the great sources of addiction is disconnection. Disconnection from, yeah. from uh, each other, disconnection from, from our spirit, and disconnection mm -hmm. from ourself. Wow. And you, Johan Hari talks about that lost in lost yeah. in, lost connections. I think it was. Is that what it was? You you yeah. were the one who told great me about book. that book, John. Oh, maybe right. Yeah, Johan Hari. Uh, law. I think it's called Lost Connections. Uh, all yeah. about yeah. Uh, the the whole the rise in depression and uh, suicidality, and then his journey as a journalist to try to understand why so many people are on antidepressants, millions and millions of people, and they're not getting better. And I think you've nailed this issue. This is about we are we are deeply lonely, not in the sense that we don't yeah. have people and colleagues yeah. and family. We are longing for deep connection in our heart. I don't want to talk about the Canucks every minute. I want to talk about what's going on inside of my soul, my longings, my connections. And we are, we've missed those, John. And that's what you're referring to right now. We crave that. I mm -hmm. think we need to feel connected. And um, one of the things that modern society has done is disconnect us from everything from, the, from the very planet we're disconnected from mm -hmm. nature and and from the natural world mm. right and we're told we're connected we're disconnected mm. and it's it, it leaves a tremendous vacancy of uh, a hole in the soul if you like yeah and, um anyway another thing that happened on that connected to that connection part is that mm. i got to lay with my father my father was in world war ii and he told us one experience where he was uh he was laying in a ditch being shot at by uh, other riflemen across the river and his buddy got his face shot off oh, and was okay. killed my dad got uh, some bullet holes to his pant legs and i got to be with him during one of my ceremonies i got to be with him laying in the ditch with him uh and to feel what he was feeling how terrified he was right and and how helpless and hopeless and and uh how this just kind of tied into all his life that wow. he had that he had no power that he was nothing and then the world controlled him he had no say in it and you know and 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 that he was really worthless and not really powerful in any way and mm -hmm. i got to tell him as his son how how powerful he was in my life right and and how how much he's meant to me and how how i inherited his genes and his dispositions and his attitudes about a lot of things and I, I was so proud to have him as a father and how much, how much he was really missed and how loved he really was, right? Wow. By, by all his children and, and by his wife, right? My mother. And I got to tell him that stuff because wow. he didn't know. He didn't know. Wow. Right? He wasn't aware of that. And I got to do that. And you know that old principle of paying it back or paying it forwards? Yeah. yeah. I got to pay it backwards. Wow. You know, and that's a that's another thing that's so common is that people have these experiences where time begins to disappear 
And we can go back to these moments in our ancestors are, mm -hmm. you know, I, this is, I mean, this is all shamanic uh, kind of work, right? I mean, the, the, the shamans of cultures all around our planet have said, you know, yes, we live in this linear time, but time isn't linear, right? We, this is, we're just experiencing it right now. But if we can get into these altered states, people have these emotional, spiritual, timeless connections with ancestors past they can make things right they can make amends they can feel release it sounds like you had this really amazing closure john with your father and uh and that what did that do for you in your uh you know in your feeling toward your father you, you know by being able to help him heal i got to heal myself of course, of course, of course, wow. right? Because I was I was carrying his shit in the pit of my stomach, right? Yeah, and I got and I got to I got to let it go, and and he got to let it go too, right? Wow, and it's changed my relationship with my children too, and my grandchildren. You know, it's just uh, it's everything is connected. You know, wow. uh, everything's connected in in nature and in time, in the spirit. Everything's connected. There's uh, wow. Well, John, thank you for that background, so that we understand kind of. You're coming not just as an addiction counselor and, and and a hospice worker, but you're coming with this deep spiritual background of having done your own personal work. You know, you've done this healing work inside, and now you bring that heart and you connect with Thomas. And so I can only imagine those early conversations uh, where obviously <laughs> Thomas is dealing with with uh, his end of life cancer diagnosis, and I'm sure these big conversations are coming up. What is death? What is dying? Are we ready? How do you find closure? You know, and and uh, so how did that? Uh, I'm going to turn to you, Thomas, before we get deep into your the experience. Do you remember the first time the idea of uh, possible psychedelic therapy uh, entered your mind as a possibility? Tell me what that was like. How did you find out that, that might be an option? And yeah, take me into your uh, into your journey there, Thomas. Well. Um... I, I really was already aware of the uh, the uh, psychedelic studies that they had done at Johns Hopkins uh, prior to meeting John, but uh, <clears throat> when I had discovered that uh, those studies, I wasn't actually experiencing end of life distress yet, mm. and so I had the awareness that those studies existed, but. Um, I hadn't really uh, formulated anything into the idea that it might be something that I would be participating in mm. until uh, till after I had met John and we'd had uh, many conversations. Mm. Um, I would have to say that uh, John was definitely a contributing factor for me mm. when I was uh, deciding whether this was something that, uh, well, a, I thought I would even be capable of, and uh, and and B would have uh, any kind of an impact, like I would be hoping that it would have. Wow! So John and I have had uh, just a, an endless supply of these uh, philosophical sort of discussions. Mm. It's uh, it's very nice to have um, somebody who uh, appreciates the value of some of these topics that a lot of people just aren't comfortable with mm -hmm. um, being able to, to speak about, uh, you know, death and dying and things like that. Um, 
it isn't really something that most people are very comfortable with right, as a right. topic. Yeah, our culture does such a disservice to, uh, to 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 all of us by by not allowing or not having ritual and normalizing the fact that we're all going to die and we don't we don't really have normal rituals around death and dying. We just kind of put people in a hermetically sealed box and we just pretend okay they're over there now and we're in a you know and, and so we just don't have conversations. We're just not comfortable with it and uh, and I I think uh, having conversations like we're doing right now is so important and uh, you, you know you more than most people i mean i know we're all dying right i know that but <laughs> some of us uh have a little bit more of a hastened you know circumstance coming our way and we kind of begin to see you know what every moment is a gift and it may not be a year six months who knows thomas take us into your cancer diagnosis a little bit and um you told me i remember you know when we when we met you told a pretty frightening story of of driving to you know one of the low points. So I think you were driving to an appointment with your wife, and you're just were like, I you know I've got colostomy bag. We've got oh, all sorts of stuff, and it that's, was uh, that's the know, day that I found out that I had stage four cancer. That's, tell me about uh, that, Thomas. Take me in. Boy, that's a winner. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> this would be uh, roughly six weeks after I had my first surgery. Uh, back in 20, uh, April of 2016, mm. um, they had uh, taken some biopsies. They, uh, they really hadn't told me what was going on at that point. And uh, so I, I got a call from my family doctor to, uh, to come in and, uh, and have a talk with her about uh, the results of these biopsies. And uh, um, following my first surgery, I had an ileostomy. So, um, yeah, for those who are not familiar with what that is, that's uh, where they take your intestines and they poke it out through your stomach. And uh, then you get a bag that is attached with adhesive to your skin. And, uh, and that is where your waste goes. So, um, what uh, what I did not realize at the time is when you get uh, upset or nervous or anything like that, your intestines really kick into high gear. Mm. And uh, so my wife and I are driving to this uh, doctor's appointment to find out what is going on with me. And uh, for the first time since I have gotten my ileostomy, the the adhesive seal on the bag failed. And so I'm driving down the road and suddenly the bag pops off of my stomach. And I am literally have this uh, volcano of poo coming out of me while we're driving. So my wife and I are trying to deal with that while we're driving in traffic. And obviously this is a very important medical appointment. I can't just skip it or reschedule it. And uh, so, so we're, we're trying to clean me up as best as we can. But, uh, you know, by the time we get there, of course, I'm just a mess. Mm. And my family doctor is kind enough to uh, um, come out from the office and, and talk to me in the car. So um, uh, I'm sitting in my car. I'm covered in poo. I'm upset and emotional. And, and then my doctor tells me that I have stage four cancer. So oh, God. that... Wow. Uh, that is uh, how I found out that uh, I was terminal. <laughs> wow. 
Thomas, I know, I know you're, you're chuckling and, and, uh, and, and it's, it's so it's a way that, you know, obviously that's how we navigate stress and anxiety. And you've told this story enough now that you've got a bit of distance, but I just wanted to feel into that because like most of us don't have any clue what that's like. Right. I have, we haven't experienced that. And when I first heard that, I like, it's such a, such a visceral, visceral, uh, a moment, right. Where you're literally covered in shit and a doctor says, I'm sorry, I've got bad news for you. Um, I don't know if we can save you. There's nothing we can do with this cancer is going to take you. And that's how you find out. And I just, my heart just goes out, you know, to you and so many people that are suffering in Canada that get those kinds of moments. And most of us have no clue what that's like. And I just want to honor you and what you what you've gone through, Thomas. And that moment was for me, when I heard that, I just I'll never forget you telling me that story. And I, I thank you for taking us back in so we can feel a little bit of uh, just touching a little bit of what it's like for a patient to be able to not have anything they can do about, you know, about what's, what's about to come. Oh, thank That's, you. Thomas. Uh, that is probably uh, about as defeated as I have ever felt in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So how, how, what were the next steps as you, uh, you know, we, we obviously, I know there's been a lot, lots of medical interventions, uh, but how did you first contact Theracil and how did you hear about uh, Bruce Tobin and Theracil? Take us into that, that, that conversation. Well, um, um, as time passed, um, so we are now going to fast forward into, uh, into 2019 and, uh, um, in, in between 2017 and 2019. Uh, so, uh, 2016, I did my first surgery, found out I had cancer, did 12 rounds of chemotherapy, did a second surgery. And uh, in that second surgery in 2017, um, the surgeon uh, reversed the ileostomy. He did one more bowel resection and uh, did not see any more cancer in there. And so he told me that uh, we think we got everything. Uh, everything is good. Just go be happy and live your life. So that is really what I did. I, I felt from 2017 to 2019 that uh, I really had the cancer under control, you know, in, in spite of them calling it stage four and mm -hmm. not curable and, and things like that. Um, I really thought that I was okay. And so uh, in 2019, when I started getting m symptoms of uh, anemia coming into play, um, I knew that something was not right. And uh, we scheduled a colonoscopy. Uh, now, I guess the, the important part for context is I've been going for PET scans uh, every three months from 2017 to 2019. And every one of those PET scans are coming back completely clear. So nothing suspicious, no tumors, no anything. So I am really under the impression that what the surgeon has told me still holds true. I'm still cancer free. Um, so I was a little, I was a little um, concerned in 2019 when I was getting these signs of anemia, I didn't really know what was going on. So we scheduled a colonoscopy. Um, and in that colonoscopy, they found two bleeding tumors in my large intestine that 
had been completely invisible to the PET scans. And, uh, and so I was obviously a little um, taken aback by that because the PET scan is supposed to be the gold standard for cancer detection. And it completely missed these. So we scheduled a third surgery in 2019 um, with the intention of taking out my large intestine and, and getting rid of those two tumors that were, that were uh, causing a problem. And uh, that is not the way the surgery went at all. Again, uh, that seems to be the theme for whenever I have surgery, it doesn't go the way they intended to. But uh, when they opened me up in 2019, there weren't just the two tumors on my large intestine. Uh, there was 40 some tumors spread wow. out completely all over my digestive system. And, uh, and it had advanced to the point where the surgeon could no longer really do anything for it. So they uh, cleaned up the incision line, they closed it back up and, uh, and everything is still there. Wow. So, so, um, so that, that is when I really experienced mm -hmm. end of life anxiety, because I realized that um, <clears throat> not only uh, did cancer really advance in the interim, but the best detection tools available cannot tell me the status of my mm, cancer. Right. So I don't know whether it's getting better, getting worse, staying the same. I don't know whether I'm in danger of one of these tumors rupturing an intestine on any given day. Um, I don't know whether um, you know an intestine will will have a blockage in you know a month from now. So the uncertainty is one of the things that really played heavily for me. Yeah. So then, <clears throat> so is at that stage that you started to do some research and said, Hey, I found this organization out in Victoria or how did that happen? Well, um, the anxiety was not good in the summer of 2019. And then in November, my mother-in-law passed away. Oh, and then man. in December, my father-in-law passed away. Wow. And then in the April after that, my own father passed away. And then a couple of weeks after that, my niece passed away from cancer as well. Thomas, so, you had four deaths in in that short a time? Five. Why? Five in a six-month period. And uh, and two of those were people who had stage four cancer just like me. Oh. So, so when I'm saying that I had a lot of end-of-life anxiety, it's... Uh, it was really, yeah. really very prominent. Yeah, in, it was in your house. You could, you was, people yeah. were dying all around you with the exact same diagnosis as you. And you're like, I guess I'm next. I guess I'm number six. It really felt like that. It really, wow. really did. And, uh, and so having the knowledge of that, uh, that study that they did at Johns Hopkins and having discussions with John and uh, suggestions that John had made for me for uh, reading material that would be informative and helpful. Um, I really started in earnest looking for a way to access this therapy uh, in Canada, uh, looking for clinical trials, looking for um, therapists who are advertising that service, anything like that. And of course, there wasn't anything until I found Theracil, who uh, who were then able to uh, tell me about a section 56, which mm -hmm. I had no knowledge of, right. and uh, and really pointed me in 
the direction I needed to go. Mm. So that was early days, and uh, they were able to put together a Section 56 exemption, which is basically uh, kind of a clause, an individual uh, applies to Health Canada to say, under these circumstances, we need you to make an exception on the Schedule 1 narcotics list because we think there's a medicine that can help someone that needs the help. And they created a Section 56 exemption, and they applied on your behalf with a physician, um, and uh, what what was the result? Or tell, t- walk me through that process. Did I get that right? Um, close. So they don't actually make the application. Okay. Um, but um, what they do is provided me with the types of information that Health Canada would be looking for, um, and the types of uh, things that I should include in my application to them. So. Um, they provided me with who I needed to talk to, what they would be looking for, and and the type of information I could provide to Health Canada mm-hmm. to help the process. And it isn't it isn't uh, quite an exemption to uh, you know th- that Health Canada is saying we agree that this is a treatment you can have. Uh, Health Canada does not endorse or support the use of psychedelics for any. Mm, clinical purpose right right it is really clear yeah right yeah yeah it is a compassionate access so they're saying we don't we don't think this uh, does anything but we will allow you to use it Mm, wow so you make the application uh how long does it take before you hear back on my original application it took a hundred and six days so uh yeah uh months months and for somebody who has a terminal illness, a hmm. uh, hundred and six days for some people is the rest of their life. And wow. I felt every one of those days, I can assure you, hmm. um, I had uh, days where the anxiety would not let me come out of my room because any extra inputs were just more than I could handle. Or, hmm. you know, there's other days where you're convinced that you are going to die that afternoon and you just can't be away from people in case that does happen. Oh man. Wow. So you were dealing with that on a daily basis. Um, take us back now into that moment. I, uh, I had the beautiful privilege of coming out with Dr. Bruce Tobin. We flew out to Saskatoon together and uh, I brought a camera and uh, some recording <laughs> equipment and met you and John there and at your place and immediately the four of us uh, formed this beautiful bond. We, we clearly knew that we were something, there was something special there. We knew that this was something beautiful. Uh, I'm getting, sorry, I'm just getting a bit of feedback here. Sorry. Uh, yeah, okay, I'm just gonna mute that. Um, yeah, so the, with the four of us were able to meet together and uh, we had this amazing connection. And we had a great evening where we talked about some of your intentions, what were you going to experience the next day? Uh, what was that first uh, evening like, uh, Thomas, for you as the four of us sat around and talked a little bit about what the experience was going to be like? You know, I I will say honestly that um, I was extremely anxious that uh, that first night. Um while I felt this uh, incredibly strong connection between the four of us and uh, this uh, the shared experience that we were 
we were creating. Um, I was still, um, and, and, and I believe you can probably attest to this, Peg, that uh, I was very much uh, caught up in the, uh, the emotional content of, of my anxiety. Mm-hmm. And uh, while, uh, while we were talking here at, uh, at my home with Bruce about some of the things that uh, I was hoping to get out of my experience and uh, some of the, uh, some of the difficulties that I was having, um, I was extremely emotional and uh, difficult to talk about these, mm-hmm. uh, these subjects at the time. Um, I, I know that some of the things that were hardest for me to address were the ideas that uh, at some point I would, I would die and not be there for my family when yeah. they needed me. Yeah. And I, I know that we have it on video that I could barely even get those words out of my mouth yeah. at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So Thomas, uh, let's, let's dive into the day. Um, we came over in the morning, uh, you, uh, prepared the mushrooms and, uh, ground them up and, and, and ate them. Uh, I know actually, sorry, it was a little towel, little, little, uh, you had made little, uh, little pills actually. That's right. That's right. And, uh, so you, you had taken them. We had a playlist, uh, we were down there in your, your basement. We all sat around and, and uh, just kind of held hands and uh let you you know kind of drift into that what was that how how did you feel it come on and what was that uh experience like for the next six hours you know having um having now had a few psilocybin experiences Mm. um i now know that uh, the onset of that was really very uh slow and gradual for me Mm. so um we did the first session um, with the dose in three parts. So I did uh, two and a half grams at, uh, I believe it was about uh, 1030. And then 45 minutes, another two and a half grams and 45 minutes, another two grams. So we did a a total of seven grams that day. And uh, because it was sort of staged, the the onset um, come up anxiety that you normally get, was really um, quite manageable. So I took my mushrooms, I put on my headphones and my blindfold and and uh, started to meditate and uh, tried to meditate into that experience. And, uh, and the psilocybin uh, started to take effect. There was uh, the first little bit there where I was really um, unsure of what I would be able to remember out of the experience. And I was trying to keep a bit of a, a running commentary mm. for uh, for myself, and uh, and partway into the experience, I realized that if I was paying attention like that, I would not be able to fully surrender into the mm. experience. And yeah. uh, and once once I decided to uh, to just completely let go and and be in the moment. Um, it it became a much more comprehensive and fulfilling experience for me. Mm. I'm sure it was eminently boring to watch from the outside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, you know, he, he, you are uh, uh, such a, a beautiful soul, Thomas. And 
I, you, I remember um, you trying to grasp and make sense of what was happening. And you're like, I'm seeing colors. It's the universe. It's reddish blue. It's numbers. You were seeing like, I remember reading about this thinking, it's almost like uh, this term synesthesia, where you mm-hmm. where you can see like numbers and colors. Kind of, I forget exactly how, but different senses overlap in these experiences. And I remember just you trying to make sense of numbers and colors and what that all meant. But I was just we were just on the outside watching this. Uh, this we didn't know what was happening inside. We were just kind of keeping that space you know, safe and loving. And uh, we didn't know what your journey was, uh, was really about. And we didn't really, and to be honest with you, even after it was over, you know, you came, you came down and your wife came down and, and, you know, it was kind of over. And, and then I remember Bruce Tobin said, you know what, what, what you need right now is it's like tea. You just need to let this steep. We don't need you to make meaning out of it and try to find this means that we just need to let it steep. We'll come back tomorrow and we'll have a conversation. You need to be with your family right now. And I remember you guys just kind of ended up having dinner with you and your family. And, uh, and then we came back the next morning and started to make some sense. And so, uh, John, do you remember that conversation uh, the next day um, as Thomas started to try to put words together for what that was? What, what were your, some of your thoughts, John, on, on uh, watching him and then hearing him try to put words together for that? You're, I think you're, yeah. Unmute. Yeah. The most gratifying thing for me was to see Thomas kind of open up and to, and to be emotional. Because he, he tended to kind of really keep a tight rein on his emotions and to be in charge of that and to not let it go too far. And I, I was really like, he was just shining. He was just shining. Mm-hmm. And it was so beautiful to see the contrast and how he was before to how he was this morning. And it was, um, I, my sense was that he was kind of, he kept himself so protected from all the anxiety and the fears and the, the potential endings. And when you lock some things down, you lock a whole bunch of other things down too at the same time and i think he he, he freed that up during his, his um psilocybin session mm. and he got freedom which is the biggest thing and he and he got peace and he was relaxed and he was just at ease with everything it was um it was mind-blowing right i mean to be yeah. at ease with knowing that you're gonna die not at ease maybe that's the wrong word but to accept it yeah, you know, um, like we are hardwired to resist it, to resist the dying. That's that's our animal nature. But to move towards acceptance of it, and not agree to it, not like it, but just say this is what's gonna, this is going to happen. It'll be okay. And that was the big biggest shift I saw in him. That I was really um, happy for him. Yeah. Right. I was really, it just made me feel good for him that he was released from all that tension he'd been carrying. Mm-hmm. Um, we did a well. Tom, um, Bruce did a anxiety quiz on him before the session started, mm-hmm. and he was in like in the highest extreme numbers that you could get. And just the next day, or the, was it the next day, Thomas? Yeah. It again, it was down to nothing. The anxiety was gone. That's amazing. Like, it is. It's stunning. And you hear people. It's almost like 
you don't believe it. You're like, how can that be? How can you have that level of anxiety on a day-to-day basis? And every waking moment, you're aware of that. You feel like you're almost in a panic attack. And you're telling me that you wake up the next morning after this kind of experience, and it's like, it's gone. And it's shocking. It's it's just insane to try try to make sense of that. Thomas, jump in. That that exact very thing, Pig, um, it was was such a sudden and drastic transformation for me that I really had a very difficult time accepting that it was real. I I really, really did. Um, And and so that... uh, that messing with my own head element of it is the exact reason why I had a second session three months after my first one. I I was I was giving myself anxiety because I couldn't accept that the treatment was so good. What? That's and, such an interesting, like, isn't that amazing? You're like, there's no way this is actually going to last. There's no way that this is actually real, that I don't feel this. Is that, so you, you kind of feel like, well, like a bad perm, like it didn't take, like you have to try it again. Is that like, I, it, or is it just, I wanted to keep, continue to explore and go deeper. It, it was really literally, I was having difficulty accepting that, the efficacy of the treatment wasn't just my imagination. And, uh, and that second treatment that I had, uh, while I took a lower dose with the second treatment than the first, it was literally like a a smack in the forehead for me to say, yeah, dummy, it really is that effective. (laughs) So, I mean, uh, I, 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 uh, I had a much easier time accepting after my second treatment mm. that yeah this this feeling of of calm and serenity is really what it actually does mm. it, it's not your imagination you really are quiet in your head mm. where it was noisy before yeah yeah that's a great line you know um i relate to that thomas you know i've i've struggled with add my whole life and uh and sometimes the interior space in my mind is so loud and and you know there's so many competing things oh this is interesting and this and this and this and what about this and what did that person said about me and this and it's and it just feels like you know there's 30 people in a in a room and they're all kind of the same equal voice yelling at me and talking with me and and at times it's a, it's, you know, I can get excited and bop around, but after my psilocybin experience, that's exactly what I found is like, all of a sudden it's quiet in here and these voices aren't so dominating. I can begin to pick and choose which voice I want to listen to the ideas. And it was, it was shocking for me. And I, and I'm still kind of shocked that, you know, years later that that is a, that's one of the outcomes. And you're saying that's exactly what happened to you too, Thomas? Exactly what happened. It's it's like um, all of this noise uh, in my head, things that I can't do anything about, mm. and and uh, things that are distracting me from being present in the current moment, uh, paying attention to to things that are actually important in my life. All mm. of that noise and distraction just silences. Wow. Um, Wow. Uh, it's I, I always tell the uh, the story is is prior to the psilocybin. It's like you're in your car and it's you know a hot summer day and you're stuck in traffic and the windows are down and it's dusty and it's noisy and 
and uh, you know, you you've got your favorite song on the radio, but you can't pay attention to it because there's so many other things going on that you don't even notice the radio is on, let alone that it's your favorite song. And and after psilocybin, you're still in traffic, but now the windows are up and the air conditioning is on, and it's just you relaxing in the moment, listening to your favorite song on the radio and, and everything is okay. Wow. Like that line, it, it's, you know, and everything is okay. Like that is shocking to hear for a person who still has stage four terminal cancer, who's still, you know, is still navigating. I mean, how do you make sense? And we can talk about your treatment program, which is really unique and interesting, but Thomas, like people are listening to this going, there's no way this this is, you know, one treatment, six hours and a few grams of mushrooms, and it can have that kind of effect on someone's psyche and freeing them up to be able to enjoy their favorite song, which is, in essence, playing at every moment of our life, right? I mean, th the beauty of life is right in front of us, even if it might be difficult and challenging, but every moment is a moment to treasure and be aware of and be present for, not be stuck in our heads. And I found it seems like your trip brought you right into each moment. And how do you appreciate each moment? And how do I not worry about the things I can't control? And how do I be present for my kids, my wife? You've got two beautiful kids and you were able to show up for them in new ways. What was the downline effect for your family? What did they experience over the next few months? Well, uh, I mean, not just my family, but uh, a number of other people around me. Um, the, the experience with psilocybin has really um, changed my, my capacity for empathy in in a huge way um and and as a result of that i'm finding that it is um so much easier for me to be to be patient and to put the effort into communicating with my family in really meaningful ways so you know not not just your usual passing chatter between you know yourself and your kids that you have and you kind of dismiss them and get on with your day you know, now, now I'm actually uh, communicating with my son who has autism. And, uh, and so um, really making that effort to help him navigate his way in the world, and understand things that are confusing for him and taking, taking the time to understand that when I say something to him, I have to wait for about five seconds for it to actually sink in. Where Previously, I'd be impatient. You know, you'd say something and he wouldn't respond right away, and I'd be moving on to the next thing, or I'd be, I'd be, you know, thinking that my words weren't getting in, when really I was the problem. I, I, I was not being patient enough for him to be able to digest what I was saying and respond. You know, Thomas, when I hear that kind of stuff, this is the stuff that doesn't get documented because this doesn't show up in literature. You, you know, no one's testing for, hey, what's the downline effect of psilocybin on how we treat our children? You know, there's, there's, you know, that's, we, that doesn't show up, but yet you, these are the things that we keep showing. We're saying the way I understand my cancer is different. The way I relate to my wife is different. The way I have patience with my children 
is changed. The way I think about each moment is different. Like you, you can't even really put it down. It's not like, oh, my, you know, uh, I take this medicine and my headache goes away. This isn't just a, a physical thing that what we're realizing with these psychedelic medicines is they, they work in tandem with our, our intentions, work in tandem with our, our heart opening. And the more we let go and the more we kind of are open, the more these substances seem to open up this neuroplastic brain of ours. And we know that we've got at least, uh, they say, th three months of wide open neuroplasticity of our brain. New neural pathways can form because this, uh, the molecule has bound to receptors in our brain that opens up new ways of the brain processing and new ways of thinking. And it seems like you're just discovering over and over new ways of engaging emotionally with those around you and those that you love. That is absolutely marvelous. Not just other people. Um, I, I've come to think about uh, dealing with my cancer in different ways as well, where uh, where normally uh, when you have stage four cancer, that is something that really feels out of your control and, uh, and, and something that, uh, you know, happens to you and, and it's every part of that is unpleasant. And, and, um, you know, people always talk about fighting their cancer. Mm. And um, in in the course of my psilocybin experiences, um, I have sort of felt more of an empathetic connection to my cancer itself. Wow. Um, so it, I, I guess sort of the, the long and the short of it is um, when you're in this state of anxiety, your body is in this fight or flight state and it's producing stress hormones it's producing you know mm. cortisol and 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 uh all of your body's resources are committed to this fight or flight or um and and when all of your resources are wrapped up in in very busy doing nothing um it doesn't really have any extra resources left over to to heal mm. And um, in my last psilocybin session here, um, I really felt like I connected with the consciousness of my cancer itself. And sort of what we, my cancer and I, uh, understand is uh, my cancer is me, but not quite me. Mm. So it's, it's me, but in a bit of a state of disconnection from the rest of me. And the cancer doesn't necessarily even want to be there. It's not like it has chosen me to make my life miserable. It, mm. it is there and um, it's a part of me. And rather than fighting it, I'm now trying to, uh, to have a more embracing relationship with it. Wow. That is like... Oh man, I hearing those words and I think about all the people who are walking into cancer centers getting this diagnosis and we talk about, you know, I'm a survivor, I'm fighting cancer, you know, it's not going to be, you know, we we use this battle language so much when it comes to this thing, right? This disease that's ravaging people and and yet you're having this really soft intimate connection. It's realizing this is part of you and that you're making peace with it and 
like it's it's like it's on another level what you're talking about thomas this is a whole nother level you know and you you mentioned just a couple minutes ago this idea of getting our body into you know fight or flight if we stay in a stress activated place our bodies can't heal we know that we know we have to be in parasympathetic our heart rate has to be down to a certain place our rest and digest has to be activated in order for our white blood cells and, and, our, and our immune system to be functioning at its best way. Well, how can we do that if we're in a constant fight or flight? If the traumas and the fears in our life are constantly happening, then there's no chance for our body to even you know, navigate cancer, deal with cancer. And I, it, it feels like there is, there's a couple of things going on here, Thomas. One is, yes, you had this, uh, this treatment for your anxiety and your fears, but there's also this downline effect, which is now that your body has got taken care of the fear and the anxiety, it feels like you are operating in a, in a parasympathetic, relaxed place as your, as your starting place now and giving your body the best chance it can to be able to operate uh, and, and work, you know, to be able to deal with the cancer. And you're still here, Thomas, you're still talking and it's been years. I am not only just talking. Um, uh, a week or two ago, I had uh, a CT scan. Now, um, since since I got the uh, the surgery in 2019, we switched from PET scans to CT scans, mm. and uh, and the result of the CT I had in 2019 was two of those 40 some tumors were visible on a CT scan, um, and. Uh, one was uh, 35 millimeters, uh, so roughly a golf ball sized, and the mm. other was 25 millimeters, so just slightly under golf ball sized. Mm. And uh, the CT scan that I, well, my last two CT scans, which I get every three months, um, I have made those two tumors shrink and completely disappear. So Thomas, the, uh, can you, I mean, it, 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 you're a walking miracle. Uh, and I, and I know you're the kind of person. And I, I said this to you when I met you, you're a very unique person. You're very detail oriented. Nothing gets missed with you. And I said, Thomas document everything you do because you have a mind that's going to be able to gift millions of people with data that you are, what you're doing is very unique. And I, we can, I'd love to dive into some of your, your cannabis work as well, because we know that the cannabis and the cannabinoid receptors in our bodies, uh, you know, which are these receptor sites we have innately in our bodies, a whole system, a cannabinoid system designed for cannabis. And you have been flooding your body with high dose cannabis, I know. And, and it's obviously helping as well. There's a, you know, these two plant medicines seem to be working in tandem, you know? So, so Thomas, what are you doing that seems to be working, brother? <laughs> Man, there is a whole list of things. Hmm. But I, I think um, probably the top of my list of, of things, uh, as you say, I, I do take very high doses of cannabis oil um, for dealing with my side effects from chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. um, I do find that those have been also helpful in dealing with the cancer itself. Mm. I also do uh, turkey tail mushroom extract, mm -hmm. which is uh, another study that I came across at Johns Hopkins that uh, 
Mr. Paul Stamets mm -hmm. make me aware of in his uh, YouTube videos. And um, right up there in equal importance, if if not more important, is this uh, <clears throat> the state of mind yeah. that I have been able to uh, to establish. Um, if you are stressed out and uh, you know, you are you are in this fight or flight, your body produces these hormones and it physically damages you. Yeah, yeah, it's an acid. <clears throat> your body is these stress cortisol and these other. They're like an acid, and you're just you're you're, you're there's no way your body can fight mm -hmm. anything, right? So no. you're so, in I mean, a very different state. Yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, if you think about it, if your mind and your mental state can physically harm your body and it's a fact that it does, then the opposite must also be true. Hmm. Wow. You know what? We are going to look back and uh, uh, years from now, and we'll be talking about your story and cases like this early on, because, you know, I know there's millions and millions of cancer patients that, that are saying, well, we've tried everything, we've done the chemo and nothing's working. And you're like, well, there's something you haven't tried. And it it's about changing your vibration. It's about changing your approach to yourself, to the world. And, and, and it's clearly helping. You are feeling more connected. You are a vibrant and alive, Thomas. Uh, there's a joy in you. Uh, and there's just this vitality in you that's so attractive and it's beautiful to be around. John, what's the biggest thing you've noticed from Thomas over the last uh, couple of uh, years now since that experience? What have you noticed in, in Thomas? I, I guess I've, I've been affected by his, um, his optimism and his uh, practical approach to things, like he, he's gone very practical. He's done, read all the studies, taken everything he can think of, all kinds of supplements and additions to chemo. He's even submitted to chemo and all the crap that comes with that. So he's done all the practical things, but he's also done a lot of um, mental, emotional, and spiritual things that me modern medicine doesn't talk about. Very little. They talk about very little. Um, and... I, I've been inspired by his holistic approach. Mm. Um, we talked before about connections, you know, like I think one of the one of the the gifts of psychedelics is that reconnects those places that we've been disconnected from within ourselves, within our whole self. And um, I, I think Thomas is, has come to that point in, in a very natural way. He, he didn't go looking for it. He didn't read it in a book, but He's he's a uh, he's attained some real some real wisdom there and how to heal. Mm. Right? It's it's a whole person project. Yeah. And he hasn't he hasn't neglected any part of himself. Wow. And and uh, so he like he is he is totally connected. You know he's connected to himself in a way that that he didn't have before. Like he's being free with his emotional life. Mm. He's very expressive with that. He's very honest and clear with it. Um, his his family relationships are wonderful. Um, I've seen the interactions between him and his him and his kids and 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 Marlis, his wife. And there's a real love there. There's a real real tight bond between all of them. And yeah, it's just free flowing, and it's so generous. They give to each other so generously. 
The other thing I've noticed about Thomas is how much he has been affecting the outside world with all his podcasts and his interviews and, you know, like he's a real celebrity. Um, I've, I've mentioned this. A lot of people know that I have this interest in palliative care and we started talking about what I'm doing. And I mentioned Thomas and oh, Thomas Hartle, his name comes, people know him just because they've read about him or heard about him somewhere. He's been in our newspaper a couple of times. Uh, he's been on CBC and CTV and W5 and all kinds of things, right? So he's he's not only affected his own life, he's affected all those around him. You know, like it's a large ripple effect that he's had. Yeah. Because yeah. he's because he's got cancer. None of this would have happened without the cancer being there. So again, cancer is Thomas's gift. <laughs> yeah. What a, what a way to frame it. You know, it's like. We, you would not be in this moment on this podcast, you know, speaking to Canadians without this experience. This experience exactly. qualifies you to be able to have this conversation, right? And and no one can no one can deny it. It's, you are living proof. You are still alive and thriving, you know. And uh, uh, there, I, I just don't know what Health Canada is going to say to that, you know. So you know, bringing the conversation back, and I appreciate these stories because that this is the kind of stuff I love talking about is these stories. But I mean, th this podcast series is really on this charter challenge, right? It's it's that Theracil is putting pressure, and they've got a, a a law firm that is going to be submitting a charter challenge in July. And it's, it's based upon this premise that, that they believe that every Canadian should be able to have access to legal psilocybin and be exempt uh, if they are in consultation with a physician and a therapist. That, that should be their right to be able to get a substance that can help them uh, at their end of their life if they so, they so choose. We've already established in Canada that if you want to end your life and your terminal and you want to get medical assistance in dying, that's your right as a Canadian. That is not up for debate anymore. That is, it might be up for debate, but that, that's been established in law. So what we are simply asking is the right to try, the right to be able to take a substance that can help people like Thomas and others deal with this kind of anxiety, fear. And we are, we are saying that this should not be an onerous task on persons that have to apply for these Section 56 exemptions, which now Health Canada has stopped granting. There's 200 applications that they've refused. This is wrong. It's morally ab ab abhorrent that they are denying suffering Canadians accessing a substance and a, a medicine that can help them. This really, really is 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 a uh, is a it it should be something that as Canadians we say what what's going on here why why does why does Health Canada think they know better than physicians and doctors in consultation with their patients uh, you know what why don't you weigh in on that one uh, Thomas what's your opinion and your thought about uh, why Health Canada needs to be able to to move there the needle on on getting access to uh, end of life treatments like this. You know, it it uh, it angers me a lot, and then I really try to control that when I'm, uh, you know, on a, a public forum like this. Um, you know, I, I recognize that Health Canada has this uh, box of the rules and regulations that they operate within, and and so I really really try to give them the benefit of the doubt on this. But since the SAP. Um, 
special was, access. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The special access program um, was brought in 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 January, and uh, they literally turned the tap off on all Section 56s. Um, they are really trying to force patients to conform into this model for the the SAP, which unfortunately is not a one size fits all sort of a situation. Mm. Um, there are many circumstances where the SAP just doesn't fit. Um, you get people uh, like myself and uh, and uh, Janice Hughes, who is uh, another uh, advocate who uh, is living in uh, Manitoba and does not have access to a doctor like myself, does not have access to a doctor who is either qualified for uh, filling out the SAP program or is not uh, qualified for uh, providing the uh, psychedelic assisted therapy. They're not trained in it. Uh, they're not educated in it. They're not justifiably, they're not comfortable with the idea of filling out this application for a controlled substance to, uh, to do a treatment that they are not even aware of, let alone comfortable and trained in. So um, for Health Canada to try to force everybody to conform into that particular mold um, is really very uh, frustrating for a lot of us because uh, it's going to, to have some very negative effects. Lots of people are dying before they get access to this treatment. Now, if you think about it, somebody who has got end-of-life anxiety, and I can think of exactly the state that I was in in 2019, early 2020, before my treatment, um, anybody who is in that state of mind is suffering, and to suffer the whole time right up until the moment of your death, that is just so wrong on so many levels. Yeah, because especially now that we know we've got the research, we have a tool, we've, we, we've, we've, we've demonstrated it's safe. This is a safe, natural treatment that's not addictive. It's a one-time thing. We're not asking you to take a pill every day. This is about a treatment plan that a physician mm -hmm. and a therapist could work out with a patient and, and, and people could have these experiences and, and let them have them. I yeah, just don't get it. <laughs> Honestly, Peg, even if it was horribly addictive, I have terminal cancer. <laughs> right, right. Right. Who cares if it's horribly addictive? Right. Yeah, right. when 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 the pain of cancer gets too much, they will give you morphine, they will yeah. give you fentanyl, they will give you this whole list of opiates we know for sure are very addictive. They're completely not concerned with that. Mm. And and so why would that even be a factor with mm. this particular medicine wow. or terminal anyway? <laughs> yeah. Is this a knowledge gap? Is this just a, a holdover from the war on drugs? Is, is this fear? Uh, like, I, I don't know what's driving uh, the kind of the reticence of health Canada to move on this and act. And hopefully this charter challenge will light a fire and, uh, and that health Canada will, will not want to be sued and instead say, we don't want to go to court and waste taxpayers dollars for something that is going to be, it's going to leave a black eye. I mean, you want to be part of Health Canada and fight against dying patients who want access to a, a compassionate substance that can help them deal with their anxiety? You want to say no to those people? 
That's crazy. John, you've worked in palliative care. You've, you've sat the, with the hands, holding the hands of dying people. Wouldn't this be an incredible thing for all the hospices, uh, uh, societies across Canada to be trained and have access to this kind of substance? What are your thoughts on, on access to this for, for palliative patients and for hospice workers? Uh, of course, uh, I'm a, a thousand percent behind it. it. It just makes no sense. It's not. It's not rational that we have this outlawed the way it is, and we have it. We have a stigma against anything psychedelic. Uh, we've been trained very well by the uh, war on drugs, and I think it comes down to that. It's just we just have to go through a paradigm shift. And you know the fact that we're talking about this right now. We didn't do this 10 years ago, right? We didn't talk about this, about psilocybin and psychedelics being beneficial to the human race. We didn't talk about that even, right? We all knew it was just horrible stuff and it would make you crazy and you'd fly off a building or something or ax your mother-in-law, whatever. It's just, it's gotten, we, I see progress. Like things are changing. There's lots of frontline news, uh, news uh, um, organizations that are covering this now. There's all kinds of newsletters you can get a hold of, right? There's podcasts galore about psychedelics. It's becoming a big deal. It's becoming a normal part of conversation now. Yeah. People are aware of it. And I think the paradigm shift begins with awareness. Hmm. And we're establishing that. We just have to be patient because it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Yeah, I have it is. no doubt about that. It just yeah. got to be patient. That's all. John, when you have conversations with other hospice workers and <clears throat> other people that kind of do the kind of work you do, uh, what's it like? Are they receptive? Are they open? When you say, hey, let me tell you the story about Thomas, like what's what happens in those conversations? What the, are they curious? Are they resistant? Like what, what's it? What's a typical conversation like, John? The people I talk to are very open hearted, compassionate, lovely people. They want to help. They want to alleviate pain and discomfort whenever they can. So they're open to it. And if, and if they hear the story of Thomas, and how what wonderful things it's done for him, they're all for it. Even though they have a hard time wrapping their minds around it because of that stigma, you know, that, that old way of thinking, they say, well, wouldn't that be great if we could do that? They don't understand it from a gut level yet, but the heart says, yeah, it, if it's good, it, it causes no harm. And end of life, like Thomas said, you know, like they'll give you morphine and fentanyl. And you can get it by the barrel full almost. Just ask for it. They'll give you as much as you want. But there's a mindset that's against psychedelics. Mm. I mean, it's just, it's not rational. And it takes yeah. time for us to move from the irrational to the rational. Mm. We're getting yeah. there. We're yeah, no, we are. We're, and this conversation is is hopefully uh, informing and, and uh, allowing people to start beginning to realize hold on a minute th there's something here we've got to we got to study this we got to look at it um i i think the health canada's reaction is we need more studies in canada yes i understand that we continue to need studies but that need that shouldn't bracket out the compassionate access that we know right now this that, this thing works that's helpful and people are dying so we don't need to study whether psilocybin is going to be uh you know efficacious for dying people let them be the ones who tell us whether it's uh it's helpful or not and uh mm -hmm. you know and so yeah i 
I, I'm glad things are shifting and you're right, John, we will look back one day and realize I can't believe that that was ever was illegal. Um, mm -hmm. But in the meantime, in Canada, we have an opportunity to be a leader in the world. And uh, wouldn't it be amazing in the next year, if Canada becomes the first country to uh, really open up access in, in this kind of way, I know they're doing that in Oregon, and Denver, and some other places, but Canada could really do and, and bring this kind of treatment inside the medical system system uh with physicians and therapists that to me that's i mean i i, I mean I, I dream of like hospice societies being trained and uh you know workers spiritual care workers being trained on how to hold space for people so that we could have societies all over uh canada offering this as a beautiful treatment uh for people that that want to access it I, I it'd be it'd be an absolutely a beautiful experience for people it's going to take time, though. It's going to take mm. time. And um, I like we're in conservative Saskatchewan, mm. redneck country of Canada and Saskatchewan here. We're, we're, we're very um, unprogressive. We're mm. lean right rather than progressive. And I talk to many people about psychedelics with foster care workers and anybody who listened to me. And there was a, a trepidation about moving in that direction because it's a slippery slope, you know. Because next thing you know, they'll want to have uh, safe drug users, safe drug use, and mm. hand out condoms and all this mm -hmm. other stuff, right? It's a slippery slope. And we we have to, I think, rather than um, be taught too hard on how they, where their minds are at, and, mm -hmm. and understand that they are trying to do the best they can, like we all do. We all do the best we can with what yeah. we got. And, mm. and I think the people who are against using psychedelics, they're there because it serves their need. And at this time, that's where they're at. That's where they're at. But we have to be gentle with them. I think we can't beat them over the head with it. Yeah. And yeah, and, uh, uh, I see a lot of evangelizing going on about about psychedelics, and that doesn't help. Mm. It doesn't help. It's not the cure all for all the world's problems. Yeah. Yeah, Cynthia yeah. Leary wanted to put uh, LSD in 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 uh, public water supplies, right? And, and, yeah, and, let dose everyone. <laughs> yeah, and th that's just not how it is. We got to move very slow and very gently, and understand where they're coming from, so yeah. they'll be able to listen to us where we're coming from. You know, I guess what I thought was so beautiful was the context in which, uh, Thomas, your your trip took place, right? So lots of preparation. You had, uh, you know, guides with you, uh, John and, and Bruce and myself. Uh, you were surrounded by love. You're in your, you know, your own home. Uh, all of that provides this really safe context with a therapist, well-trained therapist. You know, Bruce has been doing this work for years and years. And so yeah, it was done in a safe, really beautiful context. And I think that mm -hmm. helps it have these beautiful outcomes, right? So I think that's, you know, as I, as I think about what Theracil is doing, where they're doing this national training, where they are training therapists and physicians and others on how to hold space, because we know that it's not just, hey, take this pill and go home and do it. It's there's a context around it of how to do it and how to hold space, and how to keep it safe for people, on uh, how, how to allow people to open up and let go. And all of that is a, is a skill set that we've really lost in our, in our Western medical model. And we really have to go back to these ancient indigenous shamanic cultures that have really taught us 
how to do these kind of experiences in groups even, and how to do it so that we have the mind-body connection, and so that the experience itself becomes deeply spiritual. And that is, I think it's going to be a very interesting, uh, you know, issue that we're going to have to navigate, which is we want this just to be science, right? We want to just be, well, what does the science say on this? And you're like, and yet this molecule, you know, is not reduced down. You can't pin the mushroom down and say, ah, Hmm. this is how it operates. And this is what it does. And it's like, no, no, no. There's so much more going on that we just don't know yet. And, uh, and so I love the, the kind of space that we were able to create with you, Thomas. It was such a, it'll be an experience I never forget being part of that. Um, I just, I, I, I feel like I really connected to both of you as friends. We had an incredible experience there. And, and Thomas, what a treat it is to see you again here on the call and uh, to connect with you. What are some final words, Thomas, encouragement for other patients out there that are listening? What would you say to them? And what are your kind of uh, final thoughts here on the podcast? Um, well, I, I guess uh, <clears throat> a couple of things that uh, I would I would put in there. Um, with regards to this idea of compassionate access um, that we have really sort of, uh, well, not we, the uh, the uh, the government and Health Canada have really sort of pulled away from that idea of uh, compassionate access through the uh, Section 56s. Um, when I was growing up, I grew up on a farm and we had uh, a dog on the farm that uh, you know was was our family pet. And when it was starting to get older, uh, it was starting to get uh, some arthritis in his joints. And uh, um, you know when we saw that uh, our dog was suffering. Every once in a while, we would uh, give him, uh, you know, a, an aspirin or something like that, and uh, and compassionately ease their suffering that uh, they were having. Um, you know, it's what you do for for somebody that you care about. You uh, you show them compassion. If you have access to something that will ease their suffering, you do that. And when I'm talking about wanting compassionate access from the uh, the Honorable Minister Duclos and, and Health Canada. Um, what I'm really asking for is really no more than the level of compassion that the average person would show to a family pet. This isn't mm. an extreme ask that we're asking for. It's simple human compassion because the ability to ease that suffering is readily available. Mm. And if you care, you grant it. Wow. Said so well, Thomas, that is, uh, you know, I, I, I just don't know, you know, who would stand and push against what you just said. It's, uh, it's coming from your heart. It's coming from your experience. It's coming from you as a, as a, as a cancer patient and one who has been suffering. And I, and I just want to thank you, Thomas, for the courage you've had to share your story. It's not easy. I know you're not a public figure. You're, you're just, a, you know, uh, uh, just a normal guy. And yet here you are willing to become a, a bit of a, a figure that we put up there and say, look at his story. Look what happened to him. Come on. We, we need to move the needle on this. We need to allow access to this medicine to help people. And, uh, I, and it's really, uh, it's not lost on me, Thomas, that, uh, the word psychedelic was coined, uh, by uh, someone from Saskatchewan, uh, in the uh, Weyburn mental hospital in the fifties. Uh, Aldous Huxley was in a yeah. conversation with uh, Humphrey Osmond. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Humphrey uh, uh, Oswald. Is that his name? Hun- Osmond. Humphrey. 
Osmond, yeah. And so the word psychedelic is, is you know, coined by a Canadian physician in Weyburn, Saskatchewan, as they are doing tests on LSD for mental health issues. And you become the first Canadian to have legal access again, as all that program got shut down in the 70s. And, uh, and so now here you are again, and hopefully maybe uh, Saskatchewan can be on the map again for being a bit more progressive and saying, yes, we want to lead with compassion. And we want to be able to uh, see this substance help others just like yourself. Uh, John, any closing comments uh, that you want to make before we sign off here? I think everything begins with the personal. And I think we have to get people to have a personal connection to this, this problem that we're having with psychedelics. Uh, we get them uh, freed up. Um, how many people have died waiting for permission to use psychedelics mm. as, to ease their, their transition, right? Yeah. And I know there's many, many people, probably 100 maybe, have died waiting. We all are going to die. We all know people who've died. We with we are with people throughout our lives who, who have passed on. And to find a way to ease their, their journey, I think is it's in everybody's wish, right? I think everybody wants somebody to not feel the pain, the discomfort of dying. And how do we make it? I think we need to have more personal stories like Thomas's out there. Yeah. And and uh, heartfelt, real expressions of what is what it was like for them, and what it's like now. That what what the psychedelics did for him, um, and and people will it'll gradually seep in, I think. But I, I think we need to do it on a personal level. I got to meet people at their hearts, right? Yeah. That's where change really happens. Is at the yeah. heart. The brain yeah. is just a big distraction a lot of the time. Um, so we got to keep it personal. And um, keep it emotional and spiritual. I know those are not words to use very easily in our, in our modern society, but anyway, we need it. We need you. those words. We need those words, John. And and I know we. Yep. We need those words again. We, we, we're, our planet is in chaos and there's so much suffering and pain going on. We need to find these places, these ancient places and ways that bring us back into alignment with who we really are. We are beings that are made to be in connection with one another and connection with this planet. And, uh, and this is a substance that's calling us back to that. And so I am a big proponent and, you know, my background is in spirituality. And so, uh, and as a, you know, an ex minister, I, I see the beautiful hope for these substances to wake people up to who they really are and for us to find these healing connections and to have these kinds of, uh, this kind of healing that we've seen with Thomas. So thank you so much, John, for those words. Hey, hey can I say one more yeah, thing? Please. Oh yeah. I love it. Uh, there's been two times in my life where I have been uh, really affected um, in a profound way through a treatment for addictions, and I got hugged by my counselor. He was a big, he was an ex Navy guy, big beard, big beard, and big belly, and he gave me a hug and he said he loved me. That was that was a transformation. More like I still remember it. That was like 42 years ago. I still remember it. What it felt like, right? And the other time was when you and Bruce and, and Thomas and I had a hug that night, the first night when we talked about, like, yeah. the night before the, the exercise. Yeah. 
that was a real heartfelt moment for me, right? And it was four men coming together spontaneously, right? Just feeling each other. And, and I think we need to do more of that, and especially men, yeah. right? Especially us men. We have to do that more. And we're, we are kind of the leaders, and, you know, we can affect change by being just real men yeah. and, and share our hearts with each other. Wow. Wow, we John. We need each other. Yeah. We really we do. Yeah. And I, I thank you for bringing my heart back to that moment. I, I will never forget that hug in that basement. And, um, oh man, like to just meet you guys for the first time and knowing that we're going into this deep place together and we all just began to share our own personal journeys and all the masks came off, all the bullshit was on the side and it was just four humans at, you know, we'd never been together before, but we were connecting on the soul level. We were talking about what really mattered in our life. And, and we all were longing for that. And I think you're, you rightly point out, John, that men particularly are, have an absence of deep emotional connections with other men. We don't know how to relate deeply to other men. And so this is something that I, 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 have, a, I have a big passion for this. I've, I've been doing lots of men's work and starting men's groups and these kinds of things. And this is exactly the issue that, that I connect with with you, John. So thank you for what a beautiful way to end uh, talking about our heart connection, talking yeah. about our friendship that's developed because of this. Uh, what a rich conversation this has been. Thomas, any final words before we sign off? Oh, Peg, I am, uh, I am just so very grateful that uh, I have been able to, first of all, uh, meet you and, and everybody that has been involved in this process, and, uh, and infinitely grateful that I have had access to this as a treatment. It has changed my life completely. I have gone from from actively dying from my cancer to to truly actively living now. Wow. Oh man, Thomas, what a what a beautiful ending! I uh, thank you so much for being on this and being so courageous. Uh, if uh, you're a listener and you're hearing this uh, for the first time and this is kind of an eye opener to you, please go to therasil.ca, donate to the Charter Challenge. We need we need more funding to get this uh, this this brief placed on Health Canada's uh, lap. So we want to do that in the next few weeks. But thank you both for coming on today. It's been an absolute treasure to be both with both of you and to feel your energy even across the Zoom call like this. So thank you both for being on the podcast today. Thank, thank you, Pig. Okay, great. Have a great night, guys. Take care of yourself.